The following is a sermon preached at the First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, Mississippi. Well, uh, do please uh, take your or keep your Bibles in hand and turn to the book of Galatians as uh, we continue our expositions of Paul's letter to the Galatians. And we've come today to chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. You can find that on page 972 in the church Bibles. Paul, you will recall, is exercised about the spiritual danger the believers in Galatia were facing. They had become Christians through Paul's ministry. He planted the church or churches there, perhaps only 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. And by the time of the writing of this letter, it's likely that Paul had not long left the Galatians And yet already, even at this early date and so soon after his departure from among them, they have begun to stray from the true gospel. And they've begun to embrace a legalistic counterfeit instead. And so Paul is writing here in an urgent attempt to rescue them from the clutches of terrible soul-destroying error and to restore the gospel of free grace to its proper place at the center of their Christian lives. We're going to unpack the teaching in these verses, verses 6 through 10, under four headings. First, in verse 6, we'll think about what the Galatians were doing. Paul says theirs was an act of desertion. They were deserting the truth desertion. Then secondly, verse 7, what the false teachers were doing, this time the problem is distortion. Desertion, then distortion. They were distorting the truth. Thirdly, verses 8 and 9, what will be the outcome if you were to embrace this poisonous false teaching? Should it be allowed to run its course in Galatia, what will happen? Here Paul warns them, thirdly, of the danger of destruction. And then finally in verse 10, we'll look at what motivated the Apostle Paul in his whole approach to this situation. He is strident and vehement, and what is it that's driving him? Unlike the false teachers in Galatia, we'll see here the Apostle Paul modeling for us gospel devotion. And so there's the outline, have you got it? Desertion, distortion, destruction, and devotion. Before we get to each of those, let's pause and pray, and then we'll read the passage together. Let us all pray. Our Father, we know that we are prone to wander away from gospel truth to homespun error, or to embrace the lies of the evil one and the empty promises of the world. And so now we ask for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to open our ears to hear the truth, to open our eyes to see it, to open our hearts to receive and rest upon Christ as He comes to us in the gospel. For we ask it all in His holy name. Amen. Galatians chapter 1, we'll read from verse 1. This is the Word of God. Paul an apostle, not from men nor through man, 
but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Amen. We said last time that Paul in the letter to the Galatians is not unlike a parent who is impassioned and blunt and vigorous in defense of the welfare of his children who are in grave danger. And in verse 6, if you look at verse 6 for a minute, I have to say, Paul here reminds me very much of my own parents growing up. As a child, when I'd get into some trouble or other, they'd sit me down, and after listing my misdeeds, they'd say, David Strain. That's how you knew you were in big trouble, right? Both names. David Strain, I'm surprised at you. I expected better from you. Isn't that how Paul speaks to the Galatians there in verse 6? I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. Rather than, after rather bending the usual literary conventions of ancient letter writing to his own purposes in verses 1 through 3 that we looked at last time, it seems in his impatience to get to the real issues in Galatia, Paul abandons those literary niceties altogether. He's ditched the niceties of thanksgiving and prayer that appear at this point in all his other letters, and he goes directly to the parental rebuke. I am astonished at you. I thought better. I expected better from you. Now, what have the Galatians done to provoke this reaction in the Apostle Paul? What does Paul say? I'm astonished at you that you are so quickly, what? Deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. And so here, first of all, is the problem. Do you see it in the text? It is the problem of desertion. Paul has just left them. He's moved on in his onward journey to plant churches. He'd been in Galatia perhaps only a few months earlier, and now he's learned they are deserting him who called them and were turning to a false gospel. Notice carefully Paul's present tense there, by the way. Did you catch that? It's not that they have deserted the gospel, but that they were in process of deserting the gospel. Their defection from the truth was not yet complete, but it was currently underway. 
And so Paul is intervening to prevent a catastrophe. How easily it happens. That's the point. So soon, Paul says. That ought to sound an important note of caution that I dare say we all need to hear from time to time. Think about it with me for a minute. If the Galatians could begin to backslide and stray into soul-destroying doctrinal error so easily, even after having no less a teacher than the mighty Apostle Paul himself, well then, surely we ought never to assume that we are ourselves beyond danger. As Paul will put it in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So soon you're deserting him who called you. How easily it can happen. How prone to wander, Lord, we feel it, prone to leave the God we love. We really are. So be on your guard. That's part of the message here, surely. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Watch and pray, Jesus said to his disciples, lest you fall into temptation. And what is the word that Paul uses to describe what the Galatians were doing? You are quickly deserting him who called you. Turning from the true gospel to legalism, he says, is an act of desertion. One commentator translates that word, you are turning renegade. The word was used of a deserter from the army. It was someone who has gone AWOL, absent without leave. They've deserted their post. They have abandoned their unit. They are traitors to the gospel. That's Paul's language. It's pretty strong language, isn't it? And the reason Paul uses such strong language isn't jealousy on his part, as though he were upset that the Galatians used to listen to him and now they're listening to someone else. It isn't even that the error they have been imbibing was so very toxic, although that's closer to the mark. The real root of Paul's distress over the Galatians was that in turning aside from the authentic gospel, they were actually deserting. Look at the text. Notice the language. They're actually deserting Him who called them in the grace of Christ. It's not that they were deserting Paul. It's not even that they were deserting the church. They were deserting God the Father Himself. And we need to be very clear about this. This is what is really at stake when the gospel gets lost or twisted or distorted. We're walking down a long, narrow road. It's a hard road. There are potholes. We know something about potholes. There are bumps in the road. It's a challenging journey. But every hundred yards or so on both sides of the road are well-lit intersections with wide, well-maintained streets leading off in every direction into the distance. And at each, there are that bright, attractive signs advertising this turn or that one as a shortcut to your final destination. Some even offer additional allurements and attractions to visit 
along the way. If only you'd turn off the narrow path and follow their direction. But those who follow them, Paul is saying here, soon find over the next hill, round the next bend, every single one of those promising alternative routes lead you nowhere. They dwindle very soon to nothing. They leave you stranded in a spiritual wilderness, miles from where you started, and even further from where you want to go. The only road you see, narrow, often covered with shadow, and difficulty, though it may be, the only road to God is the gospel of free grace in Jesus Christ. There is no other path. They all may look more attractive to your eyes, but if you turn off the gospel highway, you will soon be lost in a spiritual wasteland. Never leave the gospel path. Never abandon the gospel of grace. Never move on from the good news about Jesus. Never. If you do, Paul says you are really abandoning all access to the God who calls to you to come to Him in that gospel. That is what is really at stake. That's what the Galatians were doing. It was a case of desertion. Now look at verse 7 and notice what the false teachers were doing. This time the problem is distortion. The Galatians are deserting the gospel because the false teachers are distorting the gospel. Paul says they are in process of turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. As we've already begun to see in verse 6, Paul is emphatic, isn't he? He's emphatic in a way that is profoundly out of step with the spirit of our age and our generation, isn't he? He is emphatic there can be only one true gospel. There's no way to speak about gospels, plural as though there were various valid but mutually incompatible messages that may each be legitimately preached, which will all nevertheless somehow still provide the same access to salvation. That is nonsensical and inconceivable to the Apostle Paul. We have to face the unhappy fact that as uncomfortable as it may perhaps make us sometimes, not everyone who merely claims the name Christian can be acknowledged as one. There are false gospels, and we need to know how to spot them. At Galatia, the false teachers preached something they called gospel. But Paul calls it in Greek, heteron euangelion, a different, or maybe better, a divergent gospel, which he says is no gospel at all. There is not any possibility of a different gospel. It's fake news. It's counterfeit currency. It is stagnant water, dangerous and toxic to consume. Actually, what was going on in Galatia, Paul says, 
was these teachers are troubling you. You see that language in the text? The word means to, to shake your allegiance or even to raise sedition against the truth of God and the rule of God in your life. So these teachers, they look the part. They sounded trustworthy and wise, but they are really inciting the Galatians to become traitors to God by their distortion of the gospel of Christ. That's what's going on, Paul says. The word in our version uh, translated as distortion means to pervert or even to reverse, to reverse the gospel of Christ. So, so he's not talking about a minor idiosyncrasy of the Galatian teachers, a, a difference of presentation, a mere quirk of emphasis or style. That's not what's got Paul on red alert. It is rather that they have effectively reversed the gospel. Now, no doubt they were saying they actually agree with Paul's message of salvation by faith in the obedience and blood of Jesus. Oh, yes, we're with Paul on all that stuff. We just think he hasn't quite gone far enough to Paul's message of simple faith in Christ alone, they added obedience to the Mosaic law. They agreed that faith in Christ is indispensable to our acceptance before the bar of God's justice. But then they also said, and so is circumcision and Sabbath observance and good works of every kind. We believe everything Paul believes, plus we believe in Jesus plus Moses. We believe in faith plus works. We believe in grace plus law. But here's the problem with that. When you add anything, anything, anything to the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ alone to be received by nothing more than mere faith alone— when you do that, you're not expanding the gospel. You're not filling it out. You're not strengthening its message. You are distorting the gospel to the point where you effectively reverse its message altogether. You're destroying the gospel. It's not just another flavor of the same nutritious meal. It's poison. And so listen to me, you who argue with God that He cannot possibly accept you or pardon you for free, simply by grace alone, merely by your clinging to Jesus. You look at your guilt and your sin, and you feel the sting of shame, and you feel certain God must require some penance, some work, some act of sacrifice some season of suffering before He will let you live unburdened by your sense of the guilt of your transgressions. And so you persuade yourself that actually you're being pious and earnest and godly as you live every day under a constant cloud of self-recrimination and self-reproach. But dear ones, hear this now. It is not godly to believe a lie. It is not pious 
to embrace a false gospel. And that is what you're doing the moment you believe you must do something to win the pardon and forgiveness of God, to earn His mercy, to merit His kindness. You have reversed the gospel. You've distorted it, and you will never find peace that way. Never. In fact, Paul says, if you're not careful, you will only find the opposite of peace. That brings us rather neatly to the third thing to see in our passage. So, first, the Galatians are deserting the gospel. The false teachers, secondly, are distorting the gospel. Now, what happens if you believe and embrace that distortion with the core of your being and live in its light? Look at verses 8 and 9. Paul warns us now about the grave danger of destruction, desertion, distortion, destruction. Look at the text, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That word accursed, as you may well know, is really the word anathema. We still sometimes use that word in our English language, don't we? Anathema, as though when we use it, we generally tend to trivialize it. You know, boiled okra is anathema to me. Or maybe you, you want to say Alabama football is anathema to me. Sorry if you like Alabama. I don't know anything about football, so forgive me. Uh, but but that's, how we, that's how we sort of talk about it. It's a, a way to say I really, really, really don't like it. It's anathema. But that is, that is to trivialize what Paul is saying, because the word in Greek here is really the equivalent of a Hebrew word we encountered several times as we studied the book of Joshua earlier in the year. You remember Joshua and the Israelites were commanded by the Lord as the executors of divine judgment to, here's the word now, devote to destruction the people and cities of Canaan. And so, after the Lord gave Israel victory over one such town that has been devoted to destruction, in short order, there would be nothing left but a burning ruin where once there stood a proud city. That is the image that Paul is evoking here. He is pronouncing not a casual invective against some personal dislike, like boiled okra or a rival football team. He is pronouncing the irrevocable condemnation of divine wrath. Anathema may be the most solemn word in the New Testament. Let him be anathema. Let him be eternally condemned. And look carefully at the target of that terrifying curse. Who are they? Paul says, I am. Let me be anathema, an angel from heaven. Let the angel be anathema. In fact, anyone, anywhere, in any place, at any time, no matter their status or pedigree or background or reputation, 
anyone who dares to teach a gospel that contradicts the apostolic message Paul was authorized to deliver to the Galatians, let them be anathema. Eternity hangs in the balance when you decide against the apostolic gospel in favor of a counterfeit that is more to your liking. So serious in our text, Paul repeats the point twice over, doesn't he? If anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed, let him be anathema, let him be forever condemned to the hell of God's righteous wrath. Clearly, very clearly, Paul is not from the south. He isn't looking for a way to soften this, is he? There's no bless their heart, these dear misguided Galatian teachers. You know, at least they're trying. There's none of that. No, Paul says, if they push soul-killing lies on you, then let them face the soul-killing consequences themselves. And stark and as uncomfortable as that is to read, Paul is actually modeling something for us here that we need to recover. We need a zero-tolerance policy for false gospels a zero-tolerance policy for false gospels. Think about it at a time when people all around us are so easily triggered, and cancel culture celebrates outrage against those who fail to support the latest politically correct ideas. Surely, we who love the gospel of free grace can muster some modicum of genuinely righteous indignation when false teachers warp and distort that precious message. I think it's really an index of how lightly the glory of God rests upon us, of how uncaring we really are for the honor of Jesus Christ, and how indifferent we still remain to the eternal destinies of sinners, that we are able to tolerate so casually so very much that runs contrary to the truth as it is in Jesus. But that is not the example that we have in the Apostle Paul here, is it? Look at verse 10 with me, and notice the last theme in our passage. First, desertion, then distortion, leading if uncorrected, to destruction. But there is another way modeled by Paul, and that is the path of devotion. Verse 10, from I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul has likely been accused by the false teachers in Galatia of being a people-pleaser with a gospel message that's too soft, too generous, not nearly strong enough in its demands for obedience. That's what the legalists accuse Paul of. But having just spoken, as we've heard, in stinging terms and applied the divine anathema to those who taught a counterfeit gospel, Paul is absolutely clear. No one can accuse me of writing here for the approval of men. But if it's not human approval, 
that motivates Paul? What really drives him? Well, he tells us in verse 10, it is the governing awareness in his life that he is the servant of Christ. Literally, he is the slave of Christ. Christ is his master. And as such, Paul has no private agenda, no personal motivation, whether in this letter or anywhere else in his ministry. He is consumed instead with a desire faithfully to discharge his calling as the bondservant of Jesus Christ. Christ is everything to him. And the good opinion of the Galatians does not even enter the picture. You know, it is a mark of someone who has come into the wonder of free grace that they do not embrace licentiousness, which is probably what the Judaizers were suggesting would be the outcome of Paul's weak message of free grace. If you believe what Paul is saying, with its lack of emphasis on the law, well, then you're going to live however you please. But those who've really been gripped by such radical, wondrous free grace never give in to licentiousness. Neither do they lurch back into legalism as the false teachers in Galatia were doing. Instead, a heart captured by free grace gladly, cheerfully bends the knee to the lordship of Christ and spends every breath, strains every fiber in an effort to serve Him faithfully. When grace sets you free, when grace pardons your sin and cleanses your conscience and unburdens you, it also wins you to Christ and makes you His forever. Paul could not therefore care less about the opinions of the Galatians with regards to him. All he cared for now was the well-done, good and faithful servant from the lips of his master, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for Paul. And you know, that is the wonder, that's the wonder of what free grace can do in the heart of those who are currently slaves to other people's opinion. If you're from a southern family, the chances are you know something about that slavery to the opinion of others. You've been taught, perhaps overtly, certainly covertly through cultural pressure, that social appearances and a good reputation and what other people think about you matters almost more than anything else. And what a terrible bondage that can exercise in our lives. But when you really get what free grace does, when you really understand your acceptance before God on the basis of the righteousness, the obedience of Jesus Christ alone, received by faith, unadorned, mere, uncomplicated, simple trust, when the wonder of that sinks in at last, your greatest ambition your driving motivation stops being what your peers think of you and starts being the honor of the one your soul has come to love most of all, 
because now you've learned that He first loved you and gave Himself for you. There is no one happier in that sense than the slave of Jesus Christ. His yoke is easy, and His burden is light, and He gives us rest. So, listen, there's no need to carry that massive burden of legal obligation and self-recrimination for your failures to meet God's standards. There's no need. Not anymore you can throw it down at the foot of the cross where Jesus paid for it all in full. Your debt is gone. Your burden lifted. He has carried it away forever. If you would just trust Him, you would discover that though the burden of it crushed Him, in the crushing of Christ is your deliverance. Do not desert the gospel. To do so is really to desert the one who called you in the grace of Christ. Do not distort the gospel, lest you face the anathema of God. Instead, bend your knee to Jesus Christ and embrace the gospel and find in Him who devoted Himself to destruction for you, someone to whom you now gladly devote your whole life, your soul, your all, forevermore. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, how we praise You that the gospel is free, free. Grace is free. Pardon is free. We need not carry the burden of our guilt a second longer. We may come and entrust it to Christ who washes us clean and lifts the load from our shoulders. Help us now today here, this moment, to do precisely that, to trust Him who obeyed for us and died for us and rose and reigns for us to trust ourselves to Him as our only Savior and Lord. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a sermon preached at the First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, Mississippi. Our contact is www.fpcjackson.org.